Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You guys have heard me talk about Red Door Grill for almost a year now on 610 Sports Radio, and they're the proud sponsor of the Bobcast. And I'll tell you what, I'm a proud eater at Red Door Grill. In fact, my family and I love going to Red Door Grill, not just on Mondays for burgers or Thursdays for fried chicken, but just about every single day of the week. Because every time we walk into a Red Door Grill location, we're walking out of there feeling satisfied, feeling great, and knowing we got some of the best food in Kansas City. $5 burgers on Monday is where the week starts. You're not going to find a better deal than that. The best burger in town for just $5. You want some fries, it'll cost you a buck more. And then on Thursday, we have the jalapeno-dipped fried chicken. That fried chicken starts marinating on Monday. It marinates on Tuesday. It marinates on Wednesday. It's got the herbs and spices to get into that chicken. And then, boom, they flash fry it on Thursday to give you the best fried chicken that you'll ever have. And then, of course, happy hour every weekday, Monday through Friday from 3 to 6. That's where we cash in sometimes on Fridays as well. Enjoy those great drinks. Enjoy the great appetizer specials from 3 to 6 every single weekday at Red Door Grill. And with three locations, there's one close to everybody. 159th in Antioch, 119th and uh Row in Town Center Plaza in Leewood and Camelot Court. And, of course, you can find the location in Brookside as well. It's Red Door Grill. In 1989, Tony Mandrich was one of the most famous collegiate offensive linemen of all time. In fact, he was getting ready to be drafted number two overall right behind Troy Aikman and ahead of guys like Deion Sanders, Barry Sanders, and Derek Thomas. Only the career of Tony Mandrich wouldn't go the way that he dreamt up. And almost 25 years later, Tony Mandrich is 100% completely sober. He shares his lifelong story with us on the latest edition of the Red Door Grill, Casey Bobcast. You look back and you see that Sports Illustrated cover, the biggest bust of all time. Does that still bother you? No, it doesn't. It's When it was released in 92, um, at the end of the train wreck era in Green Bay, for myself, my career, it was it was true. It's it's very accurate, actually. Um, there's some embellishment in it um, from the writer to make it sound more glori- glorified. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's something she has to live with, not me. Right. I mean, like, looking back on what you could have been and the way that your career turned out, is there one kind of step along the way where you go, this is where it went wrong, and if I could have skipped that day, everything would have worked out differently? Um, there's There's a lot of... I don't know if there's like one specific catalyst day. I think it's a way of thinking. I think it was a way of methodology of how I thought, how I planned things. And my plan was very, very much a conscious plan on paper of this is what to do. The road to the NFL requires steroid use. That was a fact for me. Like I believed that. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so it was like, if I believe that, that's what I'm going to do, even if the NCAA says don't do it. It's illegal. Right. Um, when I got to the NFL, the testing being so much more sophisticated and now would probably be considered kindergarten compared to the sophistication that they test now with, um, you know, I was like, I'm, there's already a stigma of the steroid use. There's too much rumors. And, you know, there's even though rumors, in my opinion, get way embellished a lot of times, I believe that there's maybe a grain, probably a grain of some truth in a rumor, mm -hmm. but it could be so embellished, right, in a different direction, depending on what gets, you know, headlines. And uh, But I think for me, more or less, it was the methodology of thinking and how I thought and, and how I planned, because I always put things on paper and plan them out and in what I want the end game to be and then in a linear timeline. And if I'm not meeting those requirements in that short and medium term, they need to be changed because they're not working. Why did you believe steroids was the way to get to the NFL? You know, it was a lot of it was the 70s NFL, the 1970s NFL, and I won't mention any teams like the Pittsburgh Steelers or anybody. Mm -hmm. um, I love the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, my favorite team, uh, and, and people like you know, the Raiders, people like, I mean, those guys, some of those guys were, you could tell who was, who was big and strong and sure. beating people up. I mean, Lyle Alzado died because of it, you know? You know, and I mean, he died because of a brain thing. Yeah. Now, did the brain thing cause, did the steroids cause the brain thing? Uh, this is what I can say. This is my opinion on it. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a specialist. But of all the people in the country now that have brain tumors, how many of them took steroids? That could be the argument. Mm -hmm. And we all know that it would be point zero 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 one, right? So did the steroids help his tumor? I would say it probably didn't help not have it, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that it caused it. But maybe it, to maybe it was totally caused by it. But everybody likes to just jump on that narrow tunnel vision bandwagon of, Steroids caused it. Right. And part of it was that he said that he felt it caused it. So, you know, whether it did or not, I don't know. I, personally, I don't believe it caused it. I sure don't believe it helped. When you when you look back at those those years growing up as a kid and you're watching the 70s and the 80s of the NFL, you have dreams just like everybody else yeah. of getting to that league. When did you get the bug that this is something that I want to do is play professional 11, football? 11 years 11 old. 11 years old playing neighborhood football and then being in Canada. I mean, you have, and you know, now we're talking back in the late seventies. Yeah. <laughs> so you have uh, four channels, <laughs> Buffalo, New York, in Southern Ontario, you have Buffalo, Detroit, um, and then to, you know, Toronto and maybe one other station. So we'd always see the lions and the, and the bills and you'd see the Buckeyes and, you know, maybe Ohio state, I mean, uh, Michigan mm -hmm. and, and whoever else in the big 10, but, you know, we'd catch the Steelers a lot because they're like that part of the Midwest, uh, the Eagles, New Yorks. But coming off the playground, I was like, no, this is what I'm going to do. Because I would like, we would start playing neighborhood in the neighborhood on the in the park at 7 a.m. on a Sunday because the 1 o'clock game kickoff. Sure. We want to get four or five hours of football in before, you know, I got to get home and 
got to get cleaned up to watch two games. Right. Right, the 1 o'clock and the 4 o'clock. Sure. So what position were you as a kid growing up? Because I was a tight end, and then I had exactly. to transition because I was very slow right. to offensive line uh, in high boy, school. Boy, you're telling me my story. Am I? <laughs> <laughs> Always That's wanted exactly. to be a tight end. Like yep. watching Mark Bavaro catch passes yep. in the 80s and just dragging defenders yep. with him everywhere. Like that was my idol. Big I wanted to house. be like him, yeah, man. He was big. That guy was awesome. And then I quickly realized that I don't have any kind of speed, right. so right. you got to play offensive yeah. line. When did that? happened for you that realization yeah well, when i was told that realization, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> in high school yeah in high school they they basically had said you're more of an asset to the team as a offensive guard or tackle than you are a tight end and you know who they had at tight end i felt was like a just slightly bigger wide receiver mm-hmm. um and yeah the guy could run way faster than me but i was like yeah, let's make it a blocking like system. Right. <laughs> let's go two tight ends blocking. <laughs> yeah. Let's have Gronk on one side and Mark Bavaro on the other on the dream team. Yeah, right? just go like right. that and call it a day. That'd <laughs> be a lot of fun. Ball, right? right, sure. Right. So you you did all that, you got the high school, you get to college, and then the hype starts to build. Oh, this could be the number one overall pick. Take me to the year before you became that top pick in the draft. What was college like that year and what were you living with mentally during that time? It was you know, college was great. Michigan State is a great, great school, um, a great part of the country. Uh, it's like I, you know, I personally I nickname it Sparta. That's where Sparta is. It's not in Greece or right. somewhere. That's where the home of the Spartans is. And uh, and to take you back even four years prior to that second last year when I was a redshirt freshman, I you know I got there and in my dorm room I wrote down the timeline of how events, I want the events to happen and how, what I need to execute for those things to happen. And becoming a, you can, you have to be a starter before you can come all Big Ten mm-hmm. or all American. And then, so they all preceded each other and then eventually, you know, win Outland Trophy. I didn't even put Heisman down um, and to be, but I did put down to be the uh, first player taken in the draft my senior year. So I still consider that a success, being the second player taken, mm-hmm. because just because of like situations of well, what, you were an a, offensive what a team demanded, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, and there's been offensive linemen, I believe, sure. that have been taken overall. Right. It's just the demand for Dallas was more of a quarterback than it was an offensive lineman, and and it worked out the way it was. But I still considered that an like that accomplishment did come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Do you look around that draft and see who was taken ahead of you, and then who was taken right after you? Go, oh boy, something yeah. wasn't right no, here. <laughs> there was definitely, uh, you know, four Hall of Fame, four of the first five Hall of Famers, yeah, and all phenomenal players, phenomenal people, uh, phenomenal, like you know, great human beings. You know, um, you know Barry Sanders. Boy, I mean, how do you not love a guy that does what he does and then walks over to the ref and just gives him the ball? And right. He's like, yeah, this is business. This is what I'm getting paid for. Sure. There's no shenanigans going on. Right. You know, I, I just loved that. And, um, you know, Derek Thomas, I hated playing against. Actually, I liked playing against them. Did you? Because <laughs> I would always say, yeah, you were drafted behind me. And he'd laugh <laughs> so you at would me. talk some smack to DT but it, out but there. But he right? knew it was all joking because yeah. my career was not going well. Right. Um, and he had already set the record for like eight or nine sacks in one game. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a tragedy with what happened to him. And, but, you know, and then Dion had a, you know, Dion changed quite a bit from college. Yeah. We were at a lot of All-American functions, and he was still that Neon Dion show. But he changed as as time went on, and, and 
you know, I mean, we knew he was all a great athlete. We played against him twice in college. We played Florida State, mm-hmm. and I was like, are you kidding me? He just covered that amount of space in, like, that period of time. I was like, I, he was the best athlete I've ever seen on the field to date, and probably the second best athlete was one of the, I would say the second best athlete that I think was Andre Risen. And they were going head to head. Yeah. Because uh, Andre was at Michigan State with us. And now, granted, obviously, I played when Herschel played against us at Minnesota. No, he's one of the top three combines ever and careers. Like, mm-hmm. just unbelievable. Bo Jackson, right? I'm just sharing from my experience from what I saw. Right. Like I saw Andre do stuff that was just like, come on, is that possible by right. a human? <laughs> and then you see Dion and you're like, Does his, do his feet even touch the turf? Because he's gliding. Wow. It was just incredible. So who was the who was the toughest guy you ever had to go against and block in the NFL? Uh, well, that's pretty easy to yeah. <laughs> Reggie White. Reggie White. Oh yeah, yeah. Reggie White sober and Reg, me sober against right. Reggie and me half in the bag against Reggie White. Was yeah. the toughest. <laughs> it was. You but know, a lot of that was in practice, though, at that time, wasn't it? No, he was he was in Green Bay. When I was in Green Bay, he was in Philly. Okay. When I was out of the league, that's when he, he went, went to Green, Green Bay, Bay okay. and then I went to Indy after being out for three years. So I got to play against Reggie once uh, when Green Bay was 10-0 and coming to Indy, and then we ended up beating him. Um, but Reggie was already, you know, on the latter part of his career mm-hmm. and still better than 95% of the guys in the league at his position. Jeez. He had the total package and, and didn't talk smack. Uh, was a great, great player in, in all aspects, the run game, the pass game, the, the smarts game being a, the awareness game, uh, making adjustments on the run, um, leadership, like he didn't even have to say anything. He right. just, the way he walked and t- and you know some of the stuff he said was just like it's like you better or right mm-hmm. you know if you're a teammate. Um, and uh, he, he was somebody I admired as much as I got tossed around by him. And and I do find it amusing. And I'm not defending myself. Look, he tossed me around like a rag doll. Um, when I was sober, I played much better against him. Um, that being said. When he was in his prime, he tossed everybody around like a rag doll. Yeah. And when I watched Super Bowls that he was in, he took that Patriots tackle and just really did what he wanted with them. And he did that from watching film against, like, the, he, he was doing it to everybody. I think mine was more kind of brought to the forefront because it's in clips, it's in stories, and... um and he, but yeah, I mean, I'm not going to sit there and deny. If I if I say no, I handled him. I'd be in denial. Sure, yeah, <laughs> I right. Mean, I would have an issue. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. When was the first time you tried drugs? When was the first time you used like any drugs? Anything? Yeah. Um, I would say senior year of high school, and it was like marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, not often, just a few times, and. My first time I ever got a good buzz going, I wouldn't even say I was like a a drunk, but a good buzz going from drinking beer was probably senior high school. Yeah. And then throughout college, yeah, there was a lot of partying and especially in that first year, but then I could see I could start to see that it was affecting my next day workout. And then I at that point of my life and progression of the disease 
I could literally sit down and be aware of it, write it down and be like, this is affecting why I'm here. Because mm-hmm. I can party anywhere. Sure. But this is affecting why I'm here to get an education, play football, hopefully get to the next level. And uh, so I tapered that partying part down and con- <laughs> and then concentrated on steroids. <laughs> sure, right. What what made you decide to do that, though? Was it because of the way you were feeling and realizing, man, eh, because I hear from players all the time today that are like, yeah, just stay away from the alcohol. If I smoke a little weed, it's okay. I can get up. The recovery is easier. So I understand what you're saying right. from the alcohol standpoint. When did that kick in that, eh, alcohol isn't what I need to do here, but if I move towards steroids, I'm going to get better workouts and a better opportunity to get into the NFL? Well, it was definitely... Well, in college, it was steroids and alcohol, even when I was taking the alcohol or, or more partying that first year. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not to say I didn't party in the last four years. I did, but not what you would think a college football player, how you would party. I would go to a lot of the parties, have a few beers, show my face, be part of the gang. And then to me, I'd be like, okay, it's midnight. I granted you're 20 years old. You can recover pretty quick. Sure, I had a few beers. I'd leave around midnight and, you know, coach always used to have his sayings, cliches, which most cliches have a lot of truth to them. Some don't, but he'd always say nothing good happens after midnight. And he's like, just watch the news. And at news, you'd see the shootings, the arrests, the DUIs all at one o'clock in the morning <laughs> after the bars closed. So I was, I felt, you know what, I'm, I'm, it's more important for me to have a good lift in preparation and or good practice the next day um, after, uh, you know, instead of partying all night and, uh, you know, just doing stuff that is counterproductive, uh, it, it was it weighed more on me. It carried more value to be the best I could be than it did to party. And I didn't feel like I was missing out on a good time. Mm-hmm. I loved to do what I was doing. Did you have fear the first time you tried steroids in which uh in which way like physical like health fear no just mental like oh my god i can't believe i'm going to do this i'm scared this is making me nervous or anything like that Uh, no i i you know if that fear was there it was more of a let's get this down on paper months before i ever took it just, so you planned out doing well i I literally everything yeah consider when i was considering the use of steroids and, you know, the way I had written it out was with my belief system, my proof of what goes on, and then obviously my thoughts of what goes on. And I felt that the only way, to, the road to the NFL for my position, it was almost a mandatory thing. Mm-hmm. That if you don't use them, you won't make it to the NFL, which is so far from the truth. Right. But that was my belief. Why did you have that belief? Just because of watching all that growing up? No, nobody was able to get with you after college and say, don't do this, it's not the proper way? Or did they did they encourage it in college? They didn't encourage it, that's for sure. Um, it, it was all at the player level. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'd say on average, now the Big Ten was 10 teams at the time, which right. made total sense. Yeah. Um, in the Big Ten, I would say on average you'd have between 25 to 40% of players on each team on them. Now, that's partly a guesstimate um, based on personal experience, mm-hmm. based on other players that I would actually play against 
from other colleges in the Big Ten that would contact me and say, okay, well, we're, we're doing the same stuff, but why is yours working better? Wow. So I was like, well, this is why. I said, number one, first of all, you have to work like no other. Like you have to work, you know, that old cliche, first one in, last one out, but you right. can still do lackluster quality work. You have to do good work, good preparation, good practice, good lifting, good off-season conditioning, you know, do all those things well. And uh, because if it was take steroids and get buffed, wouldn't everybody be buffed? Every yeah. guy? Right, sure. <laughs> we all have those egos of, yeah, I want a right. six-pack. Well, quit eating chips. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah sure. That's easier said than done. I'm still though, trying me. to figure that one out. Right, come on now. You're just asking craziness right now. Stop eating, not a chance. I'm, I am talking crazy yeah, here. Yeah, you are. You're talking nuts with that one. But people do. They always want a quick fix. Was it yeah. a quick fix for you, or was it just the... This is the because you say you write everything out. I feel like, and this is me saying this, I feel like you're writing all this out to almost justify it to yourself why it was okay to do something you probably knew deep down inside wasn't the right thing to be doing. Uh, I would say that's not accurate. Okay. Um, I always will, you know, at the end, I'll always draw like, like a spoke and a wheel, like mm-hmm. a wheel with spokes in it, and each spoke is a detail. And, you know, one of the details was attending class. And doing well in school. One of the details was, you know, showing up on time to all the team meetings and and offensive line meetings. It's like so. Well, spokes of a wheel. There's a lot of them. So I would always say, okay, say there's a hundred spokes in the wheel. You you remove two of them, the wheel's still very strong. It's just not as strong. Mm-hmm. And when I say strong, I don't mean like f- physical strength, like lifting strength. Well, one of the spokes in the wheel was steroids. But it didn't carry, in my opinion, I didn't have it carry much more value than um, leave nothing on the plate when you step on, when you cross that line that takes you from off the field to on the field at practice, you better change your thought process Mm -hmm. and the way you approach this now, because now it's time to practice. And when you want to jack around, go on the outside of the line. Um... And there was no gray area with that line. It was white paint and grass. And if you're on that in on that field, it's time to practice. It's time to do drills in off season. It's time to play the game during a game. Um, if you want to jack around, let's step off the field and jack around. So you go through college. You get drafted second overall. You're a Green Bay Packer. You're in the NFL. What was draft day like for you? What was that experience? It was like? a letdown. It was a letdown. It was something that I had, and it wasn't. It wasn't because of Green Bay. I think it could have happened anywhere. I could have been in Kansas City, L.A. It doesn't matter where it was. And in, in, in saying that, it was a little bit of a letdown that day. As I've gotten older, it became more of a letdown because I evaluate my life and processes and how I process things, and I've found out about myself. I'm way more about the process, enjoy the process, and I appreciate the end game, the the goal, but I appreciate the process of getting there because that's the harder part. And then achieving it, don't get me wrong, it's not like, okay, next. I sit there and acknowledge it, and I, and I see what, what I could have done better, what did work out, what did work great. Now try to take those tools and do the thing that's next. So for me, that whole buildup of everything from 11 years old yeah. 
which is only 20, 10 years later. You're 21 when you get drafted. Yeah. And that's not a long period of time. I just had, exp- I, I had um, assumed or visualized something different. But I was like, this is it. You know, and, and again, that had nothing to do with Green Bay. It, it was my state of mind and the way I looked at things. And, you know, and, and it didn't help, obviously, that I was in the physical condition I was in with the chemical abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even through, even now through life, I enjoy, like with photography, I enjoy the process, the preparation. You know, the shortest amount of time is spent behind the camera. For me, the longest amount of time is preparation and then post-production. Mm-hmm. It's the actual camera times, two to four hours, maybe five, maybe a six-hour session if it's a longer session. Um, and I love that process. I love working with people. I love, you know, to me, I know I've done my job when someone looks at the back of the camera to preview an image, like during the shoot, and they say, oh, my God, I can't believe that's me. It's like internally I'm like, okay. Yeah, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing because it's like we started at 11 a.m. and it's 5 p.m. and you think it's 1 p.m. You just lose track of time. Right. And that's when I know that I'm in it. So when did you realize that you had an addiction and you had a problem that needed to be addressed? Probably halfway through, probably at the end of the rookie year, going into the off season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were heavily into steroids that first year? No, I stopped steroids um, before the draft. Before the draft. Before the draft. And, and yeah. you didn't go back to steroids. No. It was just alcohol, and then it obviously turned pain into painkillers. Yeah. So you got all. How did you get off the steroids? You just stopped. Yeah. Okay, because you're 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 very unique. For a lot of people, that doesn't fly. We gotta just stop doing it because you did the rehab for twenty days, done, and you haven't had right. a cocktail since. Like right. you're a unique story with all that. Very different than I think most people who are in and out and in and out of this recovery. So for those who are listening, they're saying, "Wait a second, how did you just quit cold turkey? How did you just let's talk about the steroids first? How did you just quit that cold turkey? The steroids yeah. was was a decision based upon." literally based upon the stigma around steroids was not good. Still isn't. Yeah, good. right. Yeah, yeah. Um the rumors flying around my name and steroids and and he shouldn't be, you know, be careful if you draft him because it's all about the steroids. The sophistication of testing in the NFL was much more than college. So I was like, you, you know, after the draft, I, even, you know, cuz I had stopped 12 weeks before the draft, mm-hmm. actually before the combine. And I thought I just I'm just going to remove myself from it. So I lose 15, 20% of strength, no biggie. If you're benching 600 pounds and now you're only benching 500 pounds, mm-hmm. you're still pretty strong. Right. Uh, so I was like, I'm okay with that. The psychological effect, like we, we, most of us know how well the physical effect works. The psychological effect, I would say, is tenfold um, in strength. Uh, how you think, how you approach things. You know, you've heard the phrase roid rage. Yeah, it's true. I've seen ragers that have never touched a steroid. Um, the chances, are, there are certain steroids I took where after a day and a half of taking it, I, I was looking for a fight. And I would tell my guy, look, this is what I feel like. And he'd be like, okay, now we know that that specific steroid doesn't jive with you. So let's not do it. Let's try some of these other ones. And it was a cocktail that you just tried to mix and match. And for the most part, fundamentally, there's a foundation of things that work. But the biggest theory 
that this guy had was multiple steroids, and in my case, three to four different steroids at extremely low doses. Mixed together worked the best. He was way ahead of his game by decades. No kidding. By decades, because when I was doing the steroid plan, <laughs> I was taking three cc's of testosterone a week at 21 when you don't need any No, you don't need any of that age, right? <laughs> and that wasn't even testosterone that made me like that aggressive. I want him looking for a fight. It was another drug, another steroid. But it was like, he was just like, no, it's, that's, it, you're supposed to get an edge from it, like mental, that mental like chip on your shoulder edge. But he's like, you kind of naturally already have that. So you don't need it. Um, it was a, it worked very well if you took that part away. Um, but we ended up tweaking it and, and it worked very well. And I think that's why as time went on and, you know, became more, uh, recognized if you will, or, you know, it was a bad, it was, it wasn't a good kept secret in the big 10 or the NCAA. You'd have players from other big 10 schools, you know, contact, there was no email. Right. So <laughs> contacting saying, Hey, you know, doing a charity intramural game. I know you guys are going to be there, basketball game in the off season or something. If you have time, let's, you know, come a day early. We want to sit down and talk to you about some stuff. And I knew exactly what they were talking about. And I said, absolutely. Yeah. And I was like, I had no qualms about sharing that stuff with them because I, I didn't do it to have an, like, well, I guess that wouldn't be a, a true statement. I was going to say I didn't do it to have an advantage over them. I did it to be the best I could be. Now, the bottom line is at the end of the day, the l rule says you can't use them. Mm -hmm. That's where it ends. That's where the discussion should end. But I was like, well, yeah, but I'm different. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Of course, we're all different. <laughs> I'm right? the unique rules don't apply. And I'm, uh, I will be terminal here in a few. <laughs> yeah. So you, you get to the NFL, and I'm sure you kind of felt like on an island maybe in the NFL as a rookie, like you didn't have the, the watchdog that you had in college and all the people in place to make sure you did this, 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 and this. You, right. You're at your job. You got to do your job and you got to right. be there. So you're drinking and you're taking the painkillers. When did that become a heavy part of who you were as a, as a player and, and really as a person? When did the alcohol and the painkillers become something that you really depended on? I would on? say halfway to the latter part of the, my rookie year. Why? To fill that void of fear, you were bored or my void, yeah, uh, of fear. What were you um, afraid of? Um, not living up to expectation, not uh, becoming a failure. Yeah, uh, and everybody fails, but you keep getting up. And mine was, you know, again. Now I'll refer back to that psychological effect mm -hmm. of steroids. It's tenfold. Versus the physical effect, and we all know the physical effect is so is more obvious. It's apparent. Um, you know, I never when I got off steroids, I never went through a physical withdrawal like of shaking and sweating, right. but the psychological withdrawal was intense. Um, I'd look at myself two days after stopping a cycle in the mirror at the gym and be like, "Oh my god, I'm getting smaller already. Oh my god, I'm getting weaker." And it's not true because we would take a drug called HCG to kick your natural to your natural system back in. So you're still actually going to get stronger for about four weeks, mm -hmm. approximately, after you get off steroids, because now your natural testosterone is kicking in because it wasn't producing before. 
it didn't have to. You were putting three cc's of testosterone in you. So your body barometer was saying, I don't need to produce anymore because I'm getting plenty already. So now I'm not getting any, so I need to start producing, and you get stronger. Right. But I didn't know that until I was told that. So, you know, the guy would say, well, dummy, you're going to actually get bigger and stronger for the next four weeks, and then you'll start to see some a little bit of tail off. And, and then he was right. So you turn to alcohol, you turn to the painkillers. I, I, I get all that. You're, a lot of it trying to mask the pain of pain, playing in the NFL a little bit, right? That was... 25%, 20% of it. Yeah. The other was just the fear. The The other was the euphoria uh-huh. of taking it. All my problems are solved. Gotcha. You or know, at least yeah. they're put on hold. Right. Yeah. You know? It's, it's masks. And as soon as issues. I start getting back to reality, well, I better take some more pills. Right. Sure. <laughs> so you realize you had an addiction pretty early. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, so, yeah. So why didn't you try to stop it early? Why did you continue on that path? I did try. Oh, you did? I okay. did. I tried, uh, I'd say over the, from the second year in Green Bay, which would have been 1990 to 1995, which is when the year I got sober, March 23rd of 95, I probably tried, and I'm, and I'm being understating here, at least over 200 different ways to get sober. Uh, none of them were treatment, going to treatment. None of them were with professionals, um, like a psychologist or psychiatrist or therapist or whatever intensive outpatient. It was all on playing tricks on myself, playing games. Like if I can do this, if I can just kick this part of it, I'll be good. It's all rationalization. And then the one time I did go 14 days cold turkey Mm -hmm. and actually started to feel pretty good. And then that voice, that disease voice in your head says, see, you don't have a problem. You just went 14 days without a drug or a drink. Mm-hmm. So have one. And I was like, of course, you're right. So back and running. Back and running again. Back and running. So how much were you drinking and how many pills were you taking? I read somewhere you were at one point you were at the 70 painkillers a day. Yeah. the war- Yeah. Yeah, I would say. Wow. In, the, in the last three to five months, it was uh, on average 70. There were some 90 days. Like weeks, I should say, Whoa. because there was all uh, all of a sudden there was another connection, you know, another pharmacist mm-hmm. or something that was enamored by a jersey that you would autograph, right? And all of a sudden, prescriptions there were no prescriptions. It was jersey for a hundred, you know, and and you know, access to jerseys was not very difficult, or access to tickets was not very difficult, and um. Uh, so the, you know, the barter, if you want to call yeah, it, barter right. yourself to death, right? you know? <laughs> yeah. So what, so what for you was the realization on that March day where you woke up and said, I, I can't do this anymore. I've got to check in. It, well, it was three days before I got, so like the actual March 23rd, so March 20th, if you will. Um, I had like no intentions of getting sober. Uh, You're out of the league at this I'm point. out of three years out yeah, of the league three years now. out of the league. And I thought to myself, you know, this is the life you're dealt with. These are the cards you're dealt with. You were lucky in the beginning, and you got a good run. And even though the career didn't work out well there, it was good at state, got some notoriety, made some money, did what you could. But now, this time of life, you're kind of getting the short end of the stick. And I had accepted the fact that because I had tried hundreds of ways to stop and failed, I was like, it's impossible. 
It's just impossible. I cannot live with it, and I cannot live without it. And um, you know, it's like it's like a, I know I'll die if I keep taking it. I know I'll die if I stop taking it. <laughs> what are my options on paper now? <laughs> There's a blank slate, right? Right. So, three days before, my wife and I had a discussion, if you will, <laughs> argument. Argument, yeah. <laughs> and then my lifting buddy. Uh, who really, he was a great friend um, in Michigan. And uh, he, I think, she, you know, obviously she spoke with him and said, you've got to talk to him because he's out of control with these painkillers and drinking. So for him to call me and say, hey, you know, you're going to be around later, I'm going to stop by, was not like a common thing. It would be like meet at the gym, meet at this place to eat before we lift or after we lift. So I knew something was up. And... Uh, so I was like, yeah, come on over. And we literally sat there and had a beer each. And um, and he, he's very calm, cool, collective, great guy. And uh, he, he basically had said to me the same things hundreds of people had said to me, except obviously I was ready to hear it. And it was somebody that I trusted. Right. And, you know, and then I think coupled with the argument and then coupled with this. And I think, and then I was sick and tired of myself. Um, and he had said, if you don't change what you're doing, you're going to be, you're going to die. He's like, and you're going to be sitting on this couch like you have been the last three years. And when he said three years, I was like, wait a second. I've been on this, like here for three years. And he's like, yeah. So I said, I've been out of the league for three years. And he said, yeah. And I said, oh my God, it felt like six months. So it was three years of a blur. And he's like, so I literally pulled out a calendar off the wall and looked and I was like, it has been three years. And that was kind of like a shocker that, that I, that I lost that time of, of like figuring out six months to three years, is a significant period of time sure. of, of not figuring it out. And I just, I remember saying, I've tried everything. I don't know what else to do. And he said, well, we, have you tried treatment? And I said, no. And I like, what does that entail? And he kind of gave me the rundown. And I said, let me, let me sleep on it. And I'll let you know tomorrow if I'm willing to do it. And um, I remember that after he left, I had went to the restroom and to the, in front of the mirror and looked at myself and was just disgusted with what I saw. And there was a part of me that said, this is so not you, who you are and what you believe in. And, and, uh, you know, you're not wearing the mullet well, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and sunken in eyes and a very drawn look, almost a look of death, you know, uh, which was probably, well, that's, a really accurate description and um, a beat up human being uh, spiritually, mentally, physically uh, that still at that time felt that it was Green Bay's fault. It was media's fault. It was mom and dad's fault. It was my wife's fault. My kid's fault. It's everybody's fault. Mm-hmm. But as I was faulting people in my head, I realized, <laughs> wait, you're the common denominator of all these people. And I said, wait, 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 wait. What role did you play? And that's kind of like when the light went on, it's like, gosh, maybe 
you don't have all the answers. Because everything I've tried, most of what I tried in my life, I was successful with. Except that I could not do. And I was as strong-willed then as I am now of a bull. I mean, if I'll make it happen if I can. And, but I could not get sober like without the help, serious help of other people. And when I say other people, I don't mean just professionals. I mean other people that are in the same position of myself that are sober. Um, you know, I don't care if it's a soccer mom at a 12-step meeting mm -hmm. sharing or a 25-year, or yeah, I got sober when I was 28, but it could have been an 18-year-old kid who's been sober. I, I could have learned from them because my answers were, my best answers got me, you know, to the treatment center. So even your career being, and I'll say halted, because it didn't end when you left Green Bay, that wasn't a wake-up call? How, tell me how it ended in Green Bay. What did they say to you when it was all said? Well, it was a four-year deal, and you know everybody griped about the money. Right. Uh, like everybody, even the fans. How much did you make? It was a four point four million over four years. Right. So on average, it was two point. It was one point one, one a year. One point one a year on average. Right. Which is nothing today. I mean, they give thank that, you. You know, that's no money today. But that being but back said, then, that's, but yeah. that being said, so that was eighty nine. We're twenty. What do we know? Uh, Ninety nine, oh nine. Yeah. Thirty years later. Right. Now, when you look at thirty years prior to eighty nine, what were they making? Yeah, pennies Part, on the dollar. They yeah. were like second, third jobs they had. Yeah, in the off absolutely. So I'm like. But I was the first offensive lineman to make a million in a year that was even in the league. No no guy, and Anthony Munoz was already a pro yeah, bowler. Yeah. So I was like, you know, speaking with my agent after we signed the contract, and I was like, you know, this is good because this will help other players, specifically offensive linemen, that deserve it. And I felt at that time I deserved it when we had this sure. discussion um, that this will open the floodgates for that threshold to be broken because the next year I think it was 27 or 29 offensive linemen that signed they were they ended up becoming like contracts were up that signed for seven-figure salaries so I was very happy about that um looking back I'm even more happy about that even though I had you know put myself through a lot of pain um but those guys deserved it you know now your backups are making one or two million and it's like you know what yeah but you're 30 years later has inflation gone up that much? No. But you know what? I, it doesn't matter. It the really NFL's doesn't a different beast today. It's a, it yeah, it's a different animal. It's like yeah. it wasn't a multi-billion dollar industry when I played. It was getting there. And maybe it was when I played, but it was just in the infancy of the billions. But mm -hmm. you know what? It's like you know people will say I was born in the wrong time or the wrong era. Or, no, you were born right when you were supposed to be born. And you were part of that path. And the guys before, like, before me were the shoulders that the NFL was built on, you know, and hopefully my story, maybe the sliver of the seven figure salary that opened the door, which would have eventually would have been opened by somebody. Right. Hopefully that was a sliver that helped. Hopefully coming back to play sober is a sliver that helps and, and lets people know there is hope. You can do this. Um, and and that you can play sober. Coming back to play sober was a crucial part of my life. Sure. It was crucial. To, to prove, prove to, to myself yeah. that I could do that sober without any performance-enhancing drugs, without any masking drugs, without anything. Yeah, I took ibuprofen. Yeah, I took 
every once in a while I'll take a Toradol shot, which is an anti-inflammatory, non-mind-altering. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was not like go visit the team doctor and the team and then the office every day to get painkiller, right? You know, and and I didn't judge the players that did. It's like how am I supposed to judge him? I'm the guy that was doing that three years ago, sure, right? But if he wanted help, it was my business to help him. Mm-hmm. If he didn't want help, then it's none of my business. So how did you just kick it in twenty days of rehab, man? Like seventeen like, days. Seventeen days. I'm sorry, twenty. I thought it was only well, I didn't. You know, wow. it's, it was a. It was a. There was a lot of awakenings in treatment, as far as you know, a lady saying, uh, uh, one of the counselors saying to a group of us. I just want, and she wasn't, you know, specifically to me, it was to all eight of us and saying, before we start this one hour intense therapy session, I want you all to know that all of your best plans got you here in this room. And that that was a Louisville slugger over the face. No kidding. (laughs) Because I was like, I went from building an empire and, and setting a new standard for offensive linemen and how the game should be played to tucking my tail between my legs and uh, them kind of being like, shoo, shoo, we don't want you anymore. And now into a treatment center, feeling like a low life and a loser and a pathetic POS. And and I was like, maybe I should listen for a change instead of having all the answers. So I started to listen. And listening's a very difficult, but very much, I would say, a virtue to be able to listen because not many people do. Um, and, and, you know, that being said, there was a lot of people in green Bay, um, players included. There was a lot of front office people that they knew that something was off. I sure, I'm sure that they assumed that a lot of it was chemically related. Um, and they offered, what can we do to help? They, they gave me every opportunity to help me. And I, at that time, Treatment like now, that time going a, an NFL team sending somebody to treatment, I don't think it was a very in thing, right? And I don't think it was mandatory or manly, even right, yeah, right, I'm, right. It's I'm a bigger, sign of weakness, yeah, right? sure. I mean, you're less than, especially in that sport. So that was never like an option or never talked about, and I never knew about what treatment was about. Um, but I never went to them. It was so obvious that. You know, that they said, you know, whatever, what can we do to help you? And I'm like, I'm good, man. Can't you tell I'm good? Yeah, I'm having a, you know, a little bit of tough time with these guys on the field. But I said, I'll get it. I'll get it. And, and uh, yeah, I got the boot. So how did you sell yourself to the Colts to have them give you that opportunity I didn't to come sell back? My, I didn't sell it. uh Words like sell myself or convince people, uh-huh. it's like, yeah, I use them in certain phrases, but I don't try to convince anybody of anything. I, when I went to Indy for the workout. How did you get the workout, I guess? Like well, you're out of rehab like, and, and you pick up the phone and go, hey, this is Tony. I right. want to come for a workout. It's a, good, like, it's a great question. It's a great question. Um, when I got out of rehab, I had no intention of going back to play. And... There's a story within a story here. My personal counselor at treatment, so I'm in only in treatment 17 days, but the one I met with one-on-one, she had kind of given me an outline of when you leave, this is what we recommend you do. And then then she added to that by saying, and they were the basic fundamentals of what they would tell anybody. 
And then she said, kind of like as a side thing, she had said, you know, knowing that you were an athlete and played at Michigan State, played at the next level in the NFL, she's like, and you've been working out, you know, and or doing some kind of physical activity your, most of your life. It wouldn't hurt if you worked out a few days a week or something just to get physically feeling better about yourself. And and she made it crystal clear. She says, that, don't get me wrong, this is not going to keep you sober. She's like, this other stuff gets you and keeps you sober. This is just kind of like an additive because of your background that might help you stay, you know, like feel better about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. What I heard was work out like a maniac six days a week, uh-huh. which is what I did. Uh-huh. And at five months, I went from 255 to 300 with no, with creatine. The bad creatine too, the yeah. one that bloats you. Right. And, but I work, I knew the work ethic that it needed. I knew the, I knew the details on what to do to get there. Cause I had been there, um, except now minus the drugs, no drugs. And, uh, and it was just a matter of putting that plan into action. Um, but I, again, I started lifting just for the reason she was saying, even though it was six days a week and even though it was probably a little bit more excessive than your, what she had said, maybe a lot more excessive. Um, I enjoy, I love lifting. It's like being at home. It's like when I walk into a gym, I feel like I'm at home. Like I'm home. doesn't matter if it's in Cincinnati here. It doesn't matter where it is, Arizona. Um, and, uh, I never thought I'd get the 300 and I was getting the 300 and getting strong. And I thought, and then after doing some, some of the work that the 12 steps require or suggest, I should say, mm-hmm. Um, I started to kind of take a hard, you know, look at myself inventory wise and just kind of the path and the wreckage I created, not just with the Packers and the league and the athletes, but as a husband and a father and just in life as a son. And I knew that, you know, some, a lot had to change. One of them was, you know, what, how can I make that part right with like that professional part, right? that I had wronged and screwed up so bad. And that's when I started to consider because I was getting strong again. Cause I never, again, I thought getting to 300 without the juice, there's no way. no way. And then there I was 300 and strong, probably 20% with within my strongest ever. And I'm like, and I'm like five, six months out of treatment. And I'm thinking to myself, Oh my gosh, like this is ridiculous. That means getting plenty of sleep, eating right, you know, doing the right things the knowledge of the workouts was there. Um, not just the weights, but the drills and all that stuff. I played rack. I mean, okay. Obsessive compulsive. I, uh, I'm not naive to think my feet have slowed of not doing anything for three years. So I played racquetball literally seven days a week for six months. Um, every day for six months, I played racquetball to get foot speed back. And, I called my agent in Cleveland and said, uh, you know, I, and he hadn't heard from me in three years. Saying, last, last time he saw me, I was a wreck, right? right? Yeah. He didn't know I was in treatment or nothing. And he's, and I said, Hey, I think I'd, I'd like to, uh, I said, you know, I, I got sober, put myself into treatment. I've been sober now, you know, it was like 10 months. I said, I'd like to give it a shot. And he said, okay, before I call anybody, I need to see you. Like, I need to see your eyes. And so I drove down to Cleveland 
where he is. And um, I walked in and he was like, this is the Tony I saw in college. And I was like, well, you know, lots changed. And, and he was, he could see that I was serious about, like I had physically prepared and, you know, I wasn't slurring, I was speaking. And uh, so he made some calls and Philadelphia, they had a scout flying from the West Coast back to Philly with a layover in Cleveland for eight hours. And this was like two weeks later after I had visited my agent. So I drove down like eight hours to Cleveland from Traverse City, Michigan. And uh, saw my agent. He was like, okay, it's legit. And drove back. Two weeks later, he's like, okay, look, Philly Scout is flying through Cleveland. Eight-hour layover. Talked to Ray Rhodes, who's the head coach then, who was one of the assistants at Green Bay. And said, um, they're willing to give you a look. Um, at some local community college gymnasium, the guy will work you out. And I said, okay. And the first, and I was like thinking, oh man, am I lucky? And it's like, I get to drive eight hours to Cleveland and do this. And I'm thinking to myself, six years ago, I was calling my own combine at Michigan State, right? calling all the shots. And I kind of had to laugh at myself and be like, well, God has a sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, look at you now. And I was more grateful then than I was on draft day. Sure. I appreciated it more. I recognized the sacredness in it, if you will. Uh, Not just with the opportunity to play, but just in life decisions. So I drove down the night before to get off my feet for a day, and then the next day I had a workout. And the scouts like, "Where have you been?" Like nobody's heard anything for three years, and like you know, I did everything but a forty because there was no room. It was winter, and all my O line drills were good. My strength was good. I like bench pressed two twenty five thirty five times at the combine. Did at thirty nine, and here I was eleven months. Sober with no drugs in me. Yeah, that's pretty. And you know, and it's a stricter bench. It's not a. It's not a bounce, but it's not like a pause either. It's like it's an in between. And he's like, "Okay, I gotta, I gotta report this back to Coach Rhodes, and um, and we'll see what happens." But he's like, "This, like you, you had a good workout, and I knew I had a good workout." And the funny thing was, it was like a Christian community college, so they had the basketball team in there. It was off. May not have been off season in the middle of winter, but. They were working out with the weights and they were all like, like I knew them. They were like, Hey, you're like, you know, and I'm like, they're going, yeah, (laughs) I'm that guy. I'm that guy. (laughs) I'm that train wreck. Yeah. And, uh, so that was kind of cool, you know, like, like almost as corny and cheesy as that sounds internally, it was kind of cool. Like that they could still recognize somebody who's, they didn't know the story yet that, that I had gotten sober, but they were just like, uh, Hey, it looks like, you know, you did well on the gymnasium floor there. And so that night I drive back and then, uh, Ray, like I have a message vo- voicemail yeah, because <laughs> inter- the internet's not big yet. And from that scout saying, uh, talk, I talked to coach Rhodes and, uh, we want to fly you out in three or four days for a workout here in Philly so Coach Rhodes can see. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. Now they're gonna flip for a plane ticket. And 
I was kind of like joking to myself, I'm moving on up from the world, (laughs) 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 laughing at myself. So I said, absolutely. Well, that not even an hour goes by and Indianapolis calls me and it's uh, Coach Blackledge, who was the head coach at Kent State when my brother was getting recruited at Kent State. And I had met Coach Blackledge when I was in the eighth grade when my brother went down for his recruiting trip in 1979. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I met him for four or five hours. That was it. And 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 then now he's the O-line coach at Indy. And I'm thinking to myself, this is like, come on. Like, this is like too funny. And he's like, we want to fly you down tomorrow uh, or ASAP uh, for a workout. So obviously they had heard all of a sudden through the grapevine, they must have heard that I had had a good workout mm-hmm. resurfaced or whatever. They flew me down the next morning. It wasn't even, I wasn't even home 24 hours. They flew me down to Indy. I had a great workout. I had was transparent with them even before the workout. I said, this is what happened. Everybody focused that it was the steroids in green Bay, that that was the problem. I was off of them. I said, which was fine with me because that wasn't the real problem. <laughs> I mean, that was part of the problem, but the real active problem now was the alcohol and the painkillers and the muscle relaxants and all that stuff. And I was extremely transparent with the, the owner wasn't there for the meeting, but the GM, Bill Tobin, mm-hmm. head coach, um, position coaches. Is that Jim Mora then? Uh, no, he was after. It was uh, March Broda had just retired, uh-huh. and Lindy Infante took over. Okay, so was he in Green Bay? He was in Green retired? Bay. When yeah. He was the head coach when they drafted. Yeah. So for him, for me, I felt, wow, there's a guy that would probably be like, I definitely want nothing to do with this guy. But he gave me another chance. You know, and obviously it wasn't him with the sole decision, but I was transparent with him and said, this is what happened. And so you're getting, and I told him at the end, I said, you're getting damaged goods. And if you do sign me, or if you do even consider signing me, you're getting, um, you're taking a risk. Because the chance of relapse, obviously there's a chance there. Where with somebody that doesn't have a drinking problem, there's no chance of relapse with that stuff. And, you know, I didn't downplay myself and talk about all my faults, but I was like, this is the cold hard facts and let's call a spade a spade. This is what you see is what you get. Right. And what they saw at that point was a lot of honesty, a lot of a person that was beaten down into humility and someone that wanted to make, they were like, why do you want to come back? And I was like, to try to make as much of it as right as I can, because not there's some of it I can't. It's just too too damaged. Um, and I said, obviously, and then for personal reason, like real personal, to slay some demons and prove to myself I can play without any performance-enhancing drugs at that level. And they, then they worked me out, and they did test a 40, and I ran it like a 4.7, and which surprised myself. And that was that had to have been seven days a week for six months of racquetball. Um, and then I... Uh, they, I was changing out of my grays that they gave me, uh, getting ready to jump in the shower because the guy was going to take me to the airport to fly back to Traverse City. And they walked, the scout walked in, Clyde, I don't know if you remember, there was a scout named Clyde that walked in, great guy. And he came in like, like you felt like you were at a, 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 a car dealership with another like long form yeah. <laughs> stuff. And he's like, uh, hey, we want to sign you to a two year deal. 
and I was like, uh, I went the the whole thing went matrix on me. It went yeah. slow mo, <laughs> and I was like, whoa, it's eleven months since I couldn't get off the couch. And I he was talking. I all I heard was, <laughs> and I thought to my the only thing in that I could hear crystal clear was that voice inside my head saying. This is a direct result of sobriety, a direct result of sobriety. And, you know, God, for me, God, sobriety in the program, uh, 12 step program. Um, it's, there was no doubt in my mind without those and, and they're all intertwined. Uh, there's no chance. There's no way I'd be still on the couch. And I'm like, this is a miracle that I'm actually, and all the bridges I burned and how I left, and all smack talking, and this. And I thought, my God, like, is this real? And, you know, they were like, first year minimum wage for a fifth year player, 196, second year, 500. And, you know, I was like, I, I, I would have said, but they probably would have took me up on it, I, I would have said, I'll play for free. Yeah, right. <laughs> but they probably would have said, okay, sign here. Right. <laughs> but um, you got to feed a family, right? Right. So uh, I signed with them. That's how I got that opportunity. And, and they didn't have to give it to me. Nobody did. Even the fact that Philly gave me that chance, even with the scout, mm -hmm. and taking three, four hours of his time, like that I felt grateful for. Um, and it was just a matter of doing the right thing, just keep doing the right thing, keep doing the right thing, and just keep, you know, for me it was like keep your head down, just keep grinding, and just, um, and and let them hear it from the horse's mouth what happened. Don't let them hear it from somebody else. How many people do you think you've made a difference in their lives because of your story? You know, this is going to sound probably egotistical. And the reason... Oh, well, you are a professional. Well, athlete. I'm a professional <laughs> at that, right? <laughs> I had a lot of years of experience. Yeah. I would say, you know, like easily into six figures, if, if not seven. And I only say this because of this. Because of the amount of effect that people have had on me that have no idea that I've seen on TV after they've gone through hardship, what they've done. And it doesn't even have to be a sport. It's just a story, a documentary. And I'm like, if that person knew that what they said just became a staple in my daily thing now. That affected me. Now me, and how many of that did I share that it affected? Mm -hmm. So I hope it's that. Um, you know, I know every time the E60 re-airs because my inbox got has two or 300 emails the next day in it. And I'm like, oh, it must have aired again. Like, So I'm like, okay. I don't sit there and pay attention to it. I know my story. Right. <laughs> I, I saw it once. Sure. I was like, they did a good job. They depicted it very well. They were very fair. Um, and uh, and and I had said to them when they were when ESPN had contacted me and said, you know, we want to do one, but obviously you have to be willing to want to do one. And I said, yeah. I said, I said as as long as the bottom line is, and I don't care. You know, I mean, I do care how you do the story, but. At the end of the day, it has to come down to when somebody watches this that it makes them look at themselves, and it doesn't have to be an athlete, it could be anybody, 
and be able to say, I can relate to, I can't relate to the locker room thing or this or draft day, but I can relate to 99% of the other pain because pain is pain for you as it is for me, emotional, whether it's anxiety or, or emotions, anxiety, resentment, fear, we all have it. Just because you're a pro football player doesn't mean you have more, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just unfortunately you are exposed to more of it in the media. Right. It's just part of the deal you make. You know, it's part of the, hey, that's part of the deal. If you're going to play that game, if you're going to run for president, you're going to be exposed to getting vetted. With all that you've been through, you don't strike me as a guy that has any regrets. I don't. I, I really, I really don't. I don't, I don't regret. I definitely, definitely don't regret anything. Um, before I got sober, there's a few thing, one one thing, maybe two things. I regret, uh, you know, being sober now. It's almost twenty four and a half years that in sobriety that I didn't do differently. Um, I expected, uh, or I should say, I felt like a lot of other people thought like I did. It's like if you're going to do, if you're going to make coffee for this building, don't you want to be the best damn coffee maker? Mm-hmm. Like, don't you? Yeah. I mean, it's like, but not everybody thinks that way. And that could be a virtue or it could be a vice. Well, I put that, I put my expectation, especially since it's blood, on my daughter's. I was like, if you if you want to be a graphic artist, don't you want to be the best in the world or in the industry? And they're like, no, I just want to enjoy it. And then I'm like, what the fuck do you mean you want to enjoy it? I'm right. like, enjoy it on the road to being the best, right? And and you know that's that's hurt our relationship with my two daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, but without sobriety, I wouldn't recognize that. And nobody really, nobody told me that. Nobody said, hey, you know, maybe it's because you have these high expectations for them. Well, you know what? A lot of people have expect- expectations for their kids. Who doesn't want their kid to do great? Take the example of seven days a week for six months racquetball. That's not normal. No. But when you think that way, it's obsessive. Okay, you don't get pulled over and put in jail for too much racquetball, but does it make your life unmanageable? And so I was like, you can do more, like to them. And I tried to do it in a loving way, the only way I knew, like how to do it, but not transmit it in the way that, you know, it was transmitted to me on the field Mm -hmm. with some F-bombs here and there, right? right? Which is just like, hey, that's like business as usual if you're in that industry. Uh, on the field, it's just the way you communicate if you want to get your point across and get somebody's attention. But I would try to transmute that or transmit that to my daughters in obviously a much more loving fashion, but be like, I don't understand why, like, I just can't, like, I don't get it. Like, what do you mean you don't want to? And with the motivation of, I want them to have the best of the best, to be the best for them, not for me, but it, it's not the way it works. Parenting is probably 
you don't even have to be in recovery. Parenting, I would imagine, is probably one of the most difficult things in the world. No question. Everybody. And I know people that have never had drinking problems or drugging problems that have, yeah, I mean, parenting is tough. Mm-hmm. It's very tough. And then, but that's a regret I have. But that's a regret that can also, I guess you could say it could be mended. I don't want to say fixed, but it could be mended via you know, just to sit down and saying, look, this is the way I thought. This is the way I think and the way I think. And I put, I put too much on you guys when I didn't need to, nor, and you guys didn't need it. You were self-motivated enough. My motivation behind it was for you girls to have the best for you, not to make me proud because I'm proud of you no matter what you do. And I love you no matter what you do. And I want to be the first person you call if you're ever thrown in jail for something. Because don't sit there and think that, oh my God, I got to tell my dad. I want you, I want the, to be the first person to come there to defend you and to be in your corner. Even if what you did was wrong, I will be there um, uh, to support you, not to lash out at you. Uh, that I made crystal clear. Um, I said, don't ever fear calling me because I think at some point they started to fear me. Like, I think they started to fear if I don't live up to those expectations, he's going to be like, we let him down. And so that would be a regret, but that's something that can get, uh, changed if you will. How do you want your legacy written? You know, I think it's it's I think it's being written. I think it's how you live is your legacy. And by no means am I perfect. Um, nor do I want to be. I run from perfect people. <laughs> They're delusional. Yeah. Um I just want to make sure that I am better uh a better human being um as as each day goes by. Uh you know, I ask myself, what have I done today that is added to the world or added to the stream of life instead of what that old paradigm thinking used to be, what has the world done for me today? And it's like, boy, those are murky waters and it's a dangerous place for me to be. And as soon as I start to go there, I'm like, yeah, I need to jump in the Jeep and go down to downtown Phoenix and go to the Salvation Army and say... Um, I have four hours of free time. How can I help? What can I do? I don't care if it's busting tables or mopping a floor. It's a pretty interesting look inside the life of one of the greatest busts in sports of all time. But to find out what made him bust is even more interesting. And then to find out how he recovered and how he spent only 17 days in rehab and is now approaching 25 years of being sober, that's what's even more impressive than ever playing in the National Football This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.